Well, good morning. It's great to, to be with you virtually this morning. Uh, thank you, Wayne and, and Leah, for leading us in worship. Thank you, Wayne, for uh, preaching last week. It was good to be at home with my family and uh, uh, worship with them from home yesterday. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're going to continue to walk through the Gospel of Luke together. We're at the very end of chapter 19. And I don't know about you, but God has used several circumstances in my life to give me a wake-up call. Uh, and you know, those, those moments in your life when God just does something to get your attention. Uh, sometimes it can be as simple as, for me at least, a, a conversation that I have with somebody or a sermon that I've listened to. Sometimes it's more dramatic, like a, a near miss on the highway. Or when my dad had a, a heart attack when, the, when this building flooded, those were wake-up calls in my life where God was getting my attention. It's not unusual for God to give us circumstances that get our attention so that we would look at ourselves differently, look at God differently, look at the world with a different perspective. And I would say that right now, all of us are getting a wake-up call. COVID-19 is a wake-up call for the whole world. Uh, and I, I don't know. What about you? What about you? Has there been times in your life where God has used some, something, some, something in your circumstance to, to give you a wake-up call spiritually? Uh, I would love to hear about that. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're following on Facebook Live right now, maybe in the comments, it, you can have the courage to to, to write in there something that God has done in your life to give you a wake-up call. Maybe it'll encourage somebody else today. Uh, also, you're, you're going to have an opportunity to, uh, to do some family discussion, and we're going to send you a link to be able to do that. And I'd encourage you to ask that question to one another today. What's been your wake-up call? Maybe there's been several wake-up calls for you. I know in this season, as the world is being flipped upside down, I think God's really trying to get our attention. And, and I know for many of us, it's started to expose our hearts uh, in ways maybe we didn't realize. It's exposed, for some of us, fear and anxiety, maybe even anger and a, a distrust and not fully understanding what's going on. And, and we can't know for sure what God is doing in this season, we, we don't know everything that's going on, but what if God is using this season to wake up his church, to really get our attention? What if he's using this to really spark a revival like we've never seen in our lifetime? I mean, what if he's using this season right now to, to do this in his church, which he, by the way, if you remember, he has promised that even the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. What if right now God is preparing his church and purifying his church so that when this is all over, we're going to be like a, a, a caged tiger about to be released, not to devour everybody in front of us, but to share the gospel and proclaim the gospel like we've never done before. That's what I'm praying for. In Scripture, we see several examples of God waking his people up, sending these, these wake-up calls to get their attention, and it leads to revival. Uh, I think of Jonah, okay? He was swallowed by a fish, okay? That's a wake-up call. And what happened? Nineveh, okay? There's a revival that breaks out. I think of Saul, 
who on the road to Damascus to persecute the church encounters the risen Jesus is blinded. That was a wake-up call for him. And what was the result? Church after church after church is planted from that. And so it's, it's normal. It, this is part of how God works with us. He sends these wake-up calls. And so in today's text, Jesus is giving a wake-up call to the people of Jerusalem. A much-needed wake-up call, like Wayne talked about last week, that uh, time is running short. This is less than a week than before Jesus is going to be arrested and taken to the cross. And so they, they desperately need a wake-up call. And my hope is that as we wrestle through this text together, and especially during this season that we're all experiencing together, that God would use these passages, that he would use the season that we're going through to get our attention, to wake us up. And as we look at this passage, you're going to see the passion that Jesus has for the purity of our worship towards God. I pray that when this is all said and done, when, when, we're, when we're back together, I pray that we would never take it for granted again. And I pray that any of the apathy that we have towards God in our own hearts or the apathy that we have in the church towards God, it would completely be purged. And so let's pray that God would help that happen. Father, Father, we recognize and we, we confess that our hearts have not been nearly passionate enough about your glory or, or about sharing the gospel with the lost. We haven't been passionate nearly enough about gathering as a church family and encouraging one another and caring for one another. And I plead with you, Lord, that you would use this time, that you would use this scripture even today to wake us up, to give us a passion for the purity of worship, to give us a passion for the, for the nations and for your glory. Use your word today to change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so again, we are in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to be looking at verses 45 through 48. The context of this passage is that last week Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and uh, he, he was doing that because he knows their hearts. He, he recognizes that many of the Jews, God's chosen people, have rejected him, have rejected the gospel, and so he weeps over them. Well, those tears have now turned into what I would call a righteous anger. Now, this is a, a righteous anger is different from the, the anger that we typically experience in our lives. Most of the anger, in fact, I'd say 99% of the anger we experience is sinful anger, selfish anger, it's prideful anger. But the anger that Jesus experience, experiences here, it, it doesn't bubble up from the idols uh, of his heart. He doesn't have any idols in his heart. The, the anger that he experiences, it's not prideful, it's not sinful. It's motivated because he's got a passion for the glory of God. And he sees that God's name is being mocked in the middle of his own temple. It's motivated by a passion to see God be worshipped with pure hearts. And so he goes into the temple and he clears it out. He purifies the temple in this moment. So let's pick up in verse 45. Chapter 19, verse 45. And he, Jesus, entered the temple... 
and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so there's two scenes in this passage. In the first scene, we see Jesus clearing out the riffraff in the temple. And in the second scene, we see him teaching in the temple on a daily basis. And what you're going to see here is, first of all, that Jesus cares very deeply about the, our worship. And then we're also going to be reminded about two ways we ought to respond to that. Okay, so I want you to really picture this first scene with me right now. This is not the, the soft, gentle, peaceful Jesus that we often hear about, right? In fact, Luke actually leaves out some of the, the shocking details of this story. If you go to Matthew, Mark, or, or uh, John, what you see is that um, Jesus actually turned over the, the tables and the chairs also. Uh, in, in the Gospel of John, he's probably mentioning a, a, a different time that Jesus went into the temple and, and cleared it out at the beginning of his ministry. But during that account, he actually takes time to form a whip out of cords and drive out the animals, and he spills all the coins of the money changers. And so it's evident that, that Jesus here is trying to make a statement. And if you're somebody that knows the Old Testament, especially the prophecies of the Old Testament, this really ought not be a surprise to you. If you go to uh, Malachi chapter 3, this is right at the end of the, the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 3, it speaks of a Messiah coming into the temple. And it describes this Messiah as a refiner's fire coming to purify Jerusalem. And so Jesus here, he's making a statement. He's not just reacting because he sees something he doesn't like. He's making a statement and he's saying that, look, I am the, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior that you've been waiting for, that I've come to purify God's people. Now, it's important to note that the sale of animals and the exchanging of money here, that was actually set up early on as a system to help people worship God. So if you're traveling to Jerusalem, to the temple uh, for Passover, you're traveling from a long distance away, it's a whole lot easier to put a few coins in your pocket to buy an animal sacrifice at the temple rather than trying to drag your animals with you on the long journey. And so that's what they would do. They would go and, that they, they would, uh, and, and you had to exchange your Roman coins because the Roman coins had pagan symbols and, and phrases on them. And so they wouldn't be accepted as a, a, as a temple tax. You had to exchange those for uh, Tyrian silver coins. And so that was a system that was set up to help people worship. And so Jesus' main problem with them was not that they were selling stuff. It wasn't that they were selling, that, that wasn't his problem. It wasn't the, the, his problem wasn't that they were exchanging money. His problem was that what they had done is they turned it into a business to make money when it was supposed to be a service to help people worship. And they had even strategically moved their business from outside the temple courts to inside the outer court of the temple. The, the, it's called the court of the Gentiles. This is the, 
the part of the temple that the Gentiles were allowed, the Gentile believers were allowed to go into and they were supposed to be able to worship in this courtyard. But they had turned it into a a place of selling and trading. And and so Jesus, he, he quotes Isaiah 56 verse 7 here. This is why he quotes. He says, my house is to be called a house of prayer and uh, the rest of that verse is that my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. He's talking about the court of the Gentiles there. And in fact, Isaiah 56, that chapter is significant because that whole chapter, God is sharing his heart for the foreigners, the Gentiles, the eunuchs, the, the outcasts, the least of these that he desires to come and worship him in a place where they're not cast out where they're fully accepted by the Jews. That's what his vision was for this outer court. And they had turned it into a place, not of worship, but of filling their pockets with money, a den of robbers. And so this is how I kind of picture this illustration. Have you ever gone to like a baseball game? And you go to a baseball game and you you don't want to pack your lunch because you don't want to bother carrying it into the, the stadium. And so you figured, I'll just get something at the concession stand. And so you go there to enjoy the baseball game with your family, right? And then all of a sudden, this, the, this guy who's loud and sweating and he's hot dogs, get your hot dogs. And you look over at him and he's got this sign around his neck that says hot dogs like $7, right? And you're thinking, man, I wish I would have packed my lunch. I can buy like a dozen hot dogs for $7. But you're so hungry and by the end of the day, you're thirsty. And so you end up spending like $12 just on yourself for a cold hot dog and a soda that's 90% ice. And you, so you're still left hungry and thirsty after it's all said and done and you're broke because you had no other choice. Or at least you think you have no other choice, right? I can almost picture that's the scene here in the temple. That these guys come and they, they've been traveling forever. They're tired. They're worn out. They come into the temple and here's these guys with their, their trays of pigeons. Get your pigeon here. Get your pigeon here. And they're selling these things. They're way overpriced, but you got no other choice. And so, you have, and so they're taking advantage of these, these travelers, these, these people that are coming to worship. And so Jesus comes in and he says, no, not in my house. My house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. The first scene should be a reminder that God cares very much how we worship Him. Uh, Let me give you a quick survey in the Bible that proves that point. Starts back in Genesis chapter 4. Story of Cain and Abel, right? They both offer sacrifices to the Lord. But only Abel's is accepted by God because Cain didn't give his first and his best to the Lord. God cares about how we worship Him. And then from there, we go to the Exodus. And the, the, you read about in Exodus the reason that God freed his people from, from Egypt was so that they could serve him and worship him. You go to the Ten Commandments. The first two commandments make it very clear that we should, have no, we should worship no other gods. And in fact, we shouldn't worship an idol in place of God. God cares very much how we worship and what we worship and who we worship And ironically, after Moses comes down from the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, what happens? The Israelites had taken worship into their own hands. They had formed a golden calf 
And Moses, if he doesn't intercede for them, God just wants to wipe them all out and start over with Moses. God cares very deeply about how we worship him. God is jealous for who we worship and how we worship. And that's why he spends almost half the book of Exodus and almost all the book of Leviticus explaining how the Israelites were to worship God. And this is not just an Old Testament idea. This is not just an Old Covenant idea. You come to the New Testament and Jesus is constantly talking about how he rejects how the Pharisees are worshiping God. He says things like, These people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. And so these Pharisees, and this is going to step on our toes, especially here in the Bible Belt. These Pharisees, they had a form of worship. They they knew how to say the right thing, but their hearts were far from God. And so Jesus says, I reject their worship. Uh, When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he's teaching her something about worship. He says, those who are going to, those true worshipers, they're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus taught how we are to worship God. Uh, you, you go on into the letters from Paul. Uh, when, Peter, when Paul writes a letter to the Colossians, he rebukes them. Why? Because they had gotten legalistic in their worship. Uh, he writes a letter to the Corinthians. And again, he rebukes them because they had, their worship was, was totally disordered and dysfunctional. And then we finally, we get to Revelation 7 and we get a picture of what worship is going to be like where every tongue, tribe, and nation is circled around the throne worshiping Jesus. And so that's the picture that we're, we're moving towards. And so when Jesus the Messiah comes into the temple and he cleanses the temple, it's because he cares very deeply, God cares very deeply about how we worship him. He cares how our church worships him. He cares how individually you worship him. And so, yeah, church right now is weird. And maybe you enjoy getting up and being able to go to church in your PJs. But we know this is not right. We should long for being able to gather together as a church family. We should miss that. And when we are able to gather together again as a church family, we should always be careful to conform what we're doing on a Sunday morning during our worship gatherings, making sure we're conforming it to what Scripture has commanded us to do. Because what we do during our worship services, it's never neutral. It always teaches something. Every Sunday we are teaching something. So the choices that we make on what we, what we include in our worship service, is in, it's significant because we're always teaching people what to love and how to live through every element of the service. And so we need to be careful not to add elements that are going to distract us from worship. We need to constantly be evaluating what we're doing here and purge the things that might be a distraction. And then on a personal level, when we come back to gather for worship, what can you do to get rid of as many distractions as possible? I think that means on a practical level, when you come to gather for worship, uh, you come awake. It means you you go to bed on time Saturday night. It means you wake up on Sunday morning in enough time that you're not rushing to get here. It means you get here 
uh, in enough time where you can say hello to people, but then you can sit down and take a breath and just pray that God would prepare your heart and, and help you focus. It means that if your phone is a distraction for you on Sunday mornings, maybe you leave it locked up in your, in your car. And so for right now, what does that mean? In this weird time where we're watching on a screen our worship gathering, uh, it, it means that, you again, you do everything you can to limit the distraction. I know last week was the first time that I got to experience watching the service from home, and it's hard. I, start, I, I recognize it's hard. It's easy to get distracted. And so I would encourage you, wake up early. Get yourself ready. Get online early. We, we usually have it going at least five minutes before uh, 10.30, and so you can get the technology worked out. Uh, plan ahead to make sure your kids have something to do during that time. Give them sermon notes to follow. Uh, avoid trying to multitask. I mean, the laundry can wait, right? Uh, breakfast can wait. But use this time. Take it seriously. God cares very deeply how we worship Him. And then finally, on a heart level, God cares about the purity of your worship. Uh, in our hearts, you should constantly be looking to, to get rid of the idols. We talk about idols all the time here. Uh, we, we have, and an idol is anything in your life that you're looking to for, for comfort, for joy, for satisfaction, for, for essentially like a functional savior for you. I know for me personally during this time, uh, having sports kind of ripped away from us during this season has actually been really good for me. I don't think I realized how much I looked to sports to, for kind of like an escape to, to save me from the grind of, uh, of my everyday life. Uh, Calvin, uh, John Calvin said that our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And so we've got idols of needing to feel like we're in control, the idol of money and possessions, the idol of needing others to praise us and to accept us, to approve of us, the idol of uh, needing to feel successful, the idol of, uh, uh, of just um, food. I mean, the list could go on and on. All of us have idols. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know, you know that your heart has idols. And you've probably also recognized that those idols don't just disappear instantly. There's a battle. There's a struggle that goes on. I wish we could be sanctified by just snapping our fingers, but those idols love to hang on. And so what you start to realize as a Christian is you can't just remove the idol. You have to actually fill your heart with something to replace that idol with that's better. And so this passage actually reminds us about the intimate relationship with Jesus that we ought to have that helps fill our hearts so that we're not constantly, uh, that our worship is constantly not being distracted or derailed. And so go back to the passage, and right after Jesus drives out the riffraff in the temple, he says something very significant. He says that my house should be a house of prayer. And I think it's significant that, I mean, think about it. God could have described his temple, his house, in a lot of different ways. He could have said, look, look, this is my house. My house should be a house of singing and praise and worship. Or he could have said, my, this is my house. My house is a house of sacrifice and offerings to me. Or, or this is my house. My house is to be a house of teaching and, and learning about me. But he doesn't use anything, any of those things to describe 
his house. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer for the nations. I've been reading a, a book on corporate prayer recently, and it's been so good. Uh, he starts out the book by talking about how prayer ought to be as essential to us as breathing, that prayer is like oxygen for the Christian. And then he goes on to define prayer as simply us crying out to God, calling out to God to fulfill his promises. And he uses the example of the Lord's Prayer, the, the prayer that Jesus uses as a template to teach us how to pray. And he points to the beginning of that prayer, which is, many of you have this memorized, right? Our Father who uh, art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever thought about the beginning of that prayer is really us calling out and crying out to God, our heavenly Father, that we have this relationship with you and we want you to be with us. We want you to reign. We want you to, we want you to be here with us. And that's a promise that Jesus has given us, right? I will be with you till the end of the age. And so prayer is communion with God. It, it's, a, it's a moment where we cry out to God and plead for His presence, for us to know His presence, for us to feel His presence. And when that happens, it fills our hearts so there's no room for idols to distract us or to dis derail our worship. And so let's be a house of prayer for the nations. But not only that, in the second scene of our passage, we have another reminder of how God can fill our hearts and purge the idols that distract our worship. In the second scene of today's passage, we see this contrast between the religious elite and the, the common person, the common Jew. Verse 47, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. Why? For all the people, the average Joes, were hanging on his words. And so these religious leaders, they, they hate Jesus. They're like, why? What, what is he doing? How dare he come in and drive out of the money changers and the merchants? And really the only thing that kept them from destroying Jesus right there is because all of these people are hanging on his word. I love this scene. I can just picture these religious elites in the back of the crowd just kind of gnashing their teeth and plotting to destroy Jesus while everybody else in the crowd's leaning in. They're, they're totally invested. They're hanging on every word of Jesus. They're, they're, their attention totally fixed on Jesus. I mean, a hurricane could have blown through and that wouldn't have distracted them at all. You see, when you're communing with God, when you're praying, when you're hanging on his words, there's very little room for idols to distract you from worship. And so let's be a house that prays that this season especially would create a flood of people that are hanging on the word of God. Let's pray that our, that our kids, that our community, that our nation, that our world would desire more than anything to listen to the Word of God and treat it as the words of life. For Christians, prayer should be like oxygen and the Word of God should be like fresh bread. And so let me challenge you 
with this today. If you have never developed a specific time, place, and plan to get alone with with God, to, to pray and to read His Word, there has never been a better time to start than now. Make a time. We, and we do this. We make time and we schedule what is most important to us. Even during a pandemic, we will schedule time to meet with the people that we love. We schedule time for those that, that we care about. If you talk to anybody that's consistent in their prayer and their time in the Word, it's because they have blocked off a specific time for them to meet with God. I'm partial to the morning. I'm a morning person. And so I think it's helpful for me to, to recalibrate my heart on a regular basis in the morning to remind myself of the, the truths of the gospel. But maybe you're not a morning person. Maybe the best time for you is during lunch or right before you go to bed. But schedule a time. It's vital for you to have that time blocked off. And that's not the only time that you, that you meet with God throughout the day. Okay, it's not like you just check it off and you're, you're done. But having a daily time where you set it aside and you focus all your energy and your mind and your heart on the Lord is vital. It's essential for your life as a believer. And then I would encourage you to have a specific place. Okay, so have a time, but also have a place. Have a a normal place that you go to. Maybe it's a a specific chair or a spot on your couch or maybe it's your car before you go into work or maybe maybe you've got an office or a spare bedroom you can set up a desk in. Uh, For me, I've got a a spot on our couch. Uh, There's a table right next to it. I can set my coffee. I can see out the window, but that's my spot in the morning where I can meet with the Lord on a regular basis. I would encourage you to find a place you can go. And and then finally, you need a plan. If you want to be consistent in reading your Bible and communing with God in prayer, have a plan. There's a ton of Bible reading plans online. You can look them up. You can download uh, the YouVersion app on your phone, and you you can have a a plan that they they give you. If you're not techie, Maybe you just start reading through the Proverbs. Okay, there's 31 Proverbs. Whatever date is in the, in the, on the calendar, pick that chapter and read that proverb. It'll benefit you. But have a plan. Uh, and then have a plan for prayer. If you don't know where to start with that, I would encourage you, whatever you're reading in the Scripture, pray through that Scripture. Meditate on, okay, what is God teaching you in that scripture? How is he calling you to apply that scripture to your own life? And then plead with God. Pray that God would help you with that. And so use the scripture to guide your prayers. Uh, I like John Piper's strategy for prayer. He uses concentric, concentric circles. And so he starts by just praying. You just pray for yourself. Uh, pray for your own needs. Nobody needs more prayer for you than you, right? So you start with yourself, and then you uh, widen your circle and pray for those that you really care about, your, your family, your, your church, and then continue to widen your circle and pray for y- your neighbors and your, uh, your community and your nation and, and the world. But have a strategy for your prayer. Have a place, have a time, have a plan. What if right now God is using this pandemic to wake his church up, to 
to get us to a point that we recognize that like Jesus is turning everything upside down in the temple, that he is turning our world upside down to get our attention so that we might be a house of prayer that is hanging on every word of Jesus. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father, again, we come to you right now and we recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit, we won't wake up. We will stay apathetic towards you. And so we plead with you right now that your Spirit would use this season that we're in right now and would use your word to get our attention, to cause us to desire to hang on every word of Jesus, to cause us to desire to commune with you in prayer, and that it would motivate us to go to the nations excited to share the gospel for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.